in 2011, me and my, my squad leader, uh, Sergeant Joseph Garrison, we used to do this thing late at night where we would go into the COC, which is a center of operations. And we would look at this map and we would say, right here, I have a feeling that there's something here. We're going to go hit that tomorrow. And we'd go hit it and we'd find an IED cache. Really? Yeah. And so how do you explain that? This is Meredith For Real, The Curious Introvert, and I'm Meredith. I explore the questions people think but don't ask out loud, either because they're taboo or thanks to cultural hypnosis. My mission, and yours if you choose to accept it, is to inspire curiosity by exploring the nuance and paradox of our world. Each episode is different, so bring your ADD and your earbuds and have a look around. Hey, Curiositors, it's me, Meredith. Put on your thinking caps, because this episode is a doozy. I feel like that was the most Midwestern phrase ever. Thinking caps? Doozy? Anyway, my guest epitomizes the paradox that I love featuring here, and hopefully that you've come to love hearing. He's a combat veteran who served in the Marine Corps, he's passionate about mental health, and got dual degrees in philosophy and religion. So you'd expect him to be a fairly serious guy, which he is. What you don't expect is for him to talk about how he used precognitive abilities during his time as a Marine. That is the paradox that I love. He shares how the government trained him to use his ability, how he uses it on a daily basis, and why he thinks it's a mental health solution and how you can develop it yourself. He was a really great guest. If you're wondering where I find guests like these, I get asked that a lot, and the source is pretty different for each guest. So I started putting the source of each guest in my Monday email, along with the regular info about the episode. On Saturday, I also send out a cliff notes and clickable links email in case what you heard was so good you wish you could have taken notes or you want to check out a resource that my guest mentioned. If you're not getting those and you want to be included, text REAL to 66866 if you're in the U.S. or go to MeredithForReal.com if you're elsewhere. If you already get those emails, you're probably one of my amazing loyal listeners. Thank you so much for that. And if you're new here, welcome. Around here, we press play to get curious, to disrupt the algorithm, and to grow into better humans. We talk about everything from cannibalism to cannabis. So bring your ADD and your earbuds and have a look around. There's no specific order to listen to episodes. And if you end up liking this episode, you'll also like the one with the atheist scientist who studied near-death experiences for 50 years. It's episode 93. All right. Enjoy the show. The sixth sense, precognition, intuition, the spidey sense, whatever you call it, it's the stuff our favorite spy novels are made of. What if it's real? And what if the U.S. government helps combat soldiers develop it to make safer combat decisions? My next guest's Marine squad leader training included learning about and using a sixth sense. He completed three combat tours in Iran and Afghanistan as a Marine rifleman from 2006 to 2011, where he both listened to and ignored precognitive warnings. After earning dual degrees in philosophy and religion from the University of North Carolina, he now works as an independently contracted mental health consultant and says he still uses his sixth sense training every day. 
Today, he's going to share a little bit of military history around this topic and his personal experience and how we might all be able to upgrade our senses. Activist for mental health, optimist for humanity, Jose Herrera. Welcome to the show. Gracias, Meredith. Thank you for having me on. I'm so excited to have you on. You are one smart and fascinating dude. So I just hope that I can keep up. So we'll see. <laughs> I think you will. <laughs> thank you for your optimism. I think we've all heard rumors about military experimentation with precognitive abilities. Um, but for me, at least I was, I just assumed they were a little bit exaggerated or maybe something that was in the quote unquote old days, you know, uh, before advanced technology, but you're proposing that tapping into this organic asset is advanced technology. Yes, uh, totally. Uh, so it's my belief. Um, there's some other people who fall in this category that think that, um, precognition, uh, depending on where it's located in the brain, uh, one of the scientists at Stanford University, his name is Gary Nolan. Um, he's done preliminary work on a brain region called the Um, And he studied a cohort of individuals that came in contact with um, anomalous um, craft and uh, people that had been targeted by directed energy weapon systems. Essentially, uh, what they found within the functional uh, or the fMRI scans was brain regions that look like um, uh, dead gray matter, but it really wasn't. It was, an, it, it was uh, highly dense fibers in that general region. And uh, when you look at the basal ganglia area, um, it's associated with high functional motor, uh, uh, high functional motor cortex, like moving, being able to uh, lo know your location, find your location, higher order reasoning. And so, there's some folks who, like I said, um, look at the biological aspects of that and say, okay, if anomalous cognition were real or precognition were real, then this might be the area where information is being processed. And so um, we're able to utilize things like measurements, biofeedback uh, from the central nervous system. And there's been various studies throughout the decades um, which I, I discuss, maybe we'll tap into it, but essentially there's a thing called presentiments um, or pre premonitions. And um, one of my colleagues and collaborators, Dr. Julia Mossbridge, did a huge meta-analysis that covered, I believe, 26 reports um, over uh, that covered 40 years. And essentially what they found was uh, the body had a physiological uh, effect knowing zero to 10 seconds prior to a stimulus. And they used a series of random number generators, a series of images in order to test that out in laboratory settings. Um, and the battle space is a little bit different. You don't have access to random number generators. It's real world. So the decisions that you make on the spot um, mean life and death. Right. And I feel like in my personal life, when I've had a premonition, um, I have had two that... Well, three I could probably share about, but two more recently as an adult that were about an impending bad thing. Like it was physical mm -hmm. danger where I felt like something bad was going to happen and I couldn't put my finger on it. And then I almost drowned. 
Um, and we all, it was with a group of people and I said, Hey, I feel like something bad's going to happen. So let's just, we'll all be really careful. And then I was the one that almost drowned. And then, um, another one was, I, um, had a feeling that my husband was going to get a car accident and, um, I just, I could actually see it in my head. And two hours later he got in a car accident. So I don't, is it always like bad stuff? Do we ever have precognition of, I am going to get a raise. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah, no, totally. Um, so the way I view it is I use, I see it as a built in encrypted network design for saving lives. And, um, so it's a survival instinct that's just faded over time because of evolution. Yeah. In a way, um, there's a, a psychologist by the name of Eric Wargo who looks at the survival mechanism. Um, essentially the amygdala gets activated and there's a series of actions that take place with the autonomic nervous system and you kind of become somewhat superhuman. So their, your senses become enhanced. Um, but maybe, maybe we should define, you know, what precognition or novelist cognition is, right? Um, so you're receiving information from a future point in time. We don't know how it's getting back to us, but we're processing it in real time. And then the event happens, uh, depending on what the context is. So for your case and for my case, like for example, uh, being downrange, um, my presentiments, my premonitions always hit, uh, right, you know, right before we were about to get ambushed. So for example, um, we had a really bad sniper problem in 2011. Um, these snipers, Taliban snipers were hitting us from 600 meters away and you could know, you could feel when you were about to get shot at and it gave you enough prep time in order to either one, hold the patrol or adjust accordingly to it so that you're not taken by surprise. And the same thing with IEDs, um, you get a, this kind of like a presentiment, this premonition that if you go any further, something bad's about to happen. So let's reroute it. Um, and I think that's kind of what separates the civilian uh, aspects of trying to understand premonitions, right? It always seems like something bad's about to happen or it's an impending doom. Um, but if you reframe or yeah, if you reframe it to see it as a life-saving mechanism and you have the proper training skill sets, uh, then you can mitigate uh, how your body responds to it. Cause it's a little T trauma, right? I mean, it's a very traumatic uh, type of situation where you're constantly seeing others in harm or others being harmed. And so what do you do with that? And right now there's no real cognitive infrastructure or mental health supports to really look at psychical phenomena from the traumatic uh, point of view, uh, what it's doing to people. Um, So, yeah, um, I mean, does that answer your question? It does. It does. I really like the idea of reframing it as a life-saving device or life-saving mechanism. And that kind of, I think, separates the ability from kind of what people make fun of, like, oh, well, then let's go buy a lottery ticket. You know what I mean? Like, okay, maybe evolutionarily speaking, it's not meant for that. (laughs) Maybe it's meant to keep you from getting squashed. So uh, how long has the U.S. military used this sort of ability as a combat asset? Well, it depends. Um, So Andy Jacobson uh, wrote a chronological history of psychics and ESP being used. And, um, so for example, um, 
the origins of this began at Das Ananerbi, which was uh, Heinrich Himmler's uh, projects into uh, science and the occult. And the Soviets and the United States were kind of, uh, basically it was the beginnings of the Cold War, but they took half, we took half. And at the time, uh, the CIA was kind of uh, forming and they were interested uh, in terms of trying to find a thing called God's flesh, uh, which supposedly God's flesh was this plant that gave people uh, powers of divinity and the ability to see into the future. And so they kind of got off. They went off on this quest to go search for this, which allowed uh, some of the early uh, pioneers like Andrew Purick or or as he's known as Henry Carroll to begin investigating uh, the foundations of this. Um, and then 1949, uh, the Central uh, Intelligence Agency Act allowed the CIA to expand operations. And so they began to formally look into it, partly because it was because of the Russians. The Russians were doing it. Um, you don't see uh, more. You start seeing a, more of a foundation take place in 1970 when Stanford Research Institute begins forming um, well, what they would call the like scanning programs uh, where they're basically scanning uh, particular coordinates for certain things. And then the program becomes a lot more robust as it transitions from the CIA to the DOD, uh, into DIA, and then the NSCOMS program. Um, I don't really look into those specific time eras as much. I, I care more so about the modern era, uh, which is how we're looking at it through the biological uh, framework. Um, what's easily, uh, how can someone grasp this and how can someone be trained a lot faster um, using the biological functions of it, or at least the frames of it. And that we'll definitely dive into that so that the people who are, you know, listening or watching can kind of explore that themselves. I, I, I think that was a good history span though, because it's tempting to not tempting. That's not the right word. It's just, we miss a lot, you know, history is, there's a lot of it. <laughs> obviously. Yeah. But it's like, when we hear stuff like this, we think, oh God, what's happening now? But this is a version of this has been happening for a really long time. And uh, I think that is enlightening and important to know in in some ways. But um, but I, I, I love that your focus is on the now and as we'll get into the future. Tell me about your training. What did, when, did they come to you one day, like you came to you know, uh, for your briefing, your daily briefing. And they're like, all right, kids, um, today we're going to work on your psychic powers. <laughs> no. And <laughs> it's kind of funny. There's a large population that believes that a lot of the psychical uh, functioning and training that's taking place um, has to be done in some type of like secret CIA program. <laughs> right. And that's because of movies. That's why we think that. <laughs> And uh, so a lot of people are let down that it rolls down that way. But but check it. The, the Marine Corps uh, began. The Marine Corps did it in a different way. So we were having a lot of problems in early 2006, actually um, early OIF, Operation Rocky Freedom. We had a lot of snipers. We had a lot of IED ambushes. And we needed to give Marines and sailors skill sets necessary to be adaptable to those types of things. So they ended up creating what they call the Combat Hunter Program, which came from the Left of Bane book, which was written by a former law enforcement officer who had 30 years on the force and then a big game hunter. And what they found 
or at least what they wrote down was um, six domains and those domains traversed an area, uh, uh, for example, biometrics, what people, what people do in terms of like, if you're, let's say approaching them, they might do something that might seem shady to you unconsciously. You're processing that information. You're able to adapt to those individuals or you go into a town and people are running away and something's off and, and you see maybe different types of like uh, graffiti on the wall. Uh, it indicates that one, the atmosphere there is one not suited for coalition forces. And also two, the paraphernalia or the graffiti that's there indicates that that's, uh, you know, Al Qaeda or Taliban or Mujahideen territory and you're not welcome. So as you're being trained throughout these processes, you're, you're essentially turning that into, um, uh, memory and that memory is fast paced. You may not know that you're processing it, but you are and you train according to that. So, um, the early books, combat profiling or tactical profiling and the combat hunter book had a, a portion, uh, in there called atmospherics, which was the collective unconscious mood of individuals or groups in the environment. And, and in that portion, it contained, you know, the sixth sense and, um, you know, and they give an example, if your gut is telling you, Hey, maybe you shouldn't go down this route. Hey, maybe you shouldn't go into this town or, Hey, maybe you need to readjust. You need to follow through with that. And so it gave, you know, Marines and sailors the ability to traverse those types of landscapes prior to, and you had to train it in. It wasn't worthwhile knowing the theoretical framework you had to actually train it in and turn it into muscle memory. And that's how we got trained up. But even before that, a lot of Marines that I know came from small game hunting, big game hunting, a lot of wilderness type areas. So we were already able to utilize that function of knowing whether someone was stalking you or praying. You just sense it. And, you know, today, the you know the best way to really understand that is a thing called interoception, which uses a brain region called the insula, which allows you to track your nervous system. So if you you're feeling certain sensations as a result of your autonomic nervous system that someone's watching you, you should you should read up on you should pick that up. And if you're in tune with yourself, then you should be able to pick that up. So you just readjust to it. So going into the Marine Corps learning an additional theoretical framework and then putting it into practice through, through training and then deploying in real world situations, uh, it, it became a very potent, you know, mix. You're well endowed with the skill sets to navigate uh, something that's inherently chaotic and sporadic. Is this like elevated situational awareness that happens so quickly that you, you, you have no time for internal narration? Like I see graffiti, I see people running away and what would be considered spooky is actually just being situationally aware. In some instances, that's the case. Yeah, absolutely. And this is why I kind of, so we're going to kind of get maybe into like a, not a debate, but more so a kind of like a, a conflict here. Right. So if it's biological, then it's really not like the supernatural thing. Right. Well, we still don't understand the mechanism of how information is coming from the future. And it also depends too, right? Because precognition or presentiments and premonitions are a category of this overall framework, right? We're not really necessarily scanning, like, you know, trying to target a specific location or target profile 
in some like area that we don't know about, but we're picking up something. What is that that we're picking up? And so the common held belief is, is that the human has five senses. Um, and that comes from Aristotle's The Anima Book Number Two. But in fact, the human has maybe 21 to 33 senses that we don't normally talk about or normally know about. Uh, and as a result of that, we leave a lot of areas. We leave a huge gray area where the human doesn't know how to actually utilize those functions or understand those functions. So um, attempting to really uh, absorb a situation um, is kind of a funky area. In, in one sense, like, for example, take the, the, the dowsing, map dowsing, for example, so map dowsing, we used to get these satellite maps, um, had topography, had building locations, dot, dot, dot. And we had a huge area of operations. And typically your team leaders and your squad leaders would huddle around this thing and you would navigate it and say potential areas for patrolling or potential areas for caches. And uh, in 2011, me and my, my squad leader, uh, Sergeant Joseph Garrison, we used to do this thing late at night where we would go into the COC, which is a center of operations. And we would look at this map and we would say right here, I have a feeling that there's something here. We're going to go hit that tomorrow. And we'd go hit it and we'd find an IED cache. Really? Yeah. And so how do you explain that? How do you explain that? (laughs) So again, you know, that's, that's the paradox of, uh, of this idea of, um, precognition or anomalous cognition, where are you getting that information from? And again, you know, Marines are really in tune with their bodies. That's why they, they, they harp on, you know, physical readiness, spiritual readiness, mental toughness. So for us, it was more of a biological sense rather than uh, a, a kind of like, I'm going to get into the dreams or the visions. Now those did come. And so maybe I'm jumping ahead here, but so part of, part of, part of the reason why I view Precognition through the biological framework is because one, uh, most DOD components today are not going to want to hear that crap. They're going to want to hear something that's applied, right? Uh, practical and easy to use. But also too, because the way war has evolved today, um, I use this thing called the meta war paradigm, and I really look into what they call the non kinetic spectrum, which is basically influence operations. Uh, maybe directed energy weapon systems, uh, narrative warfare, mimetic warfare, things like that. Things that really target the brain uh, and cause a massive disruption within dopamine, endorphins, uh, cortisol levels, norepinephrine. I mean, just really create a whole chemical cocktail where it incapacitates an individual. Well, if you incapacitate an individual through those through those functions, through those biological functions, using those chemicals by a series of information then you're basically taking out their intuitive ability, your systems one and your systems two. Mm. Uh, your systems one mean more the uh, intuitive process, that unconscious, quick, rapid decision-making ability, and then the analytical reasoning where you're, you're so freaking chemically jacked up that uh, you can't make a decision, uh, whether it's you know long-term, short-term. I mean, you're talking a little bit about like social media digital nonsense, right? Where people are like uh, zombified in a way that to their environments that they become, as to use your word, incapacitated to have free thought and definitely not higher level thinking. 
that that that's part <laughs> that, of it. Yeah, that <laughs> that's part of that's a huge part of it too. But also too, it's actually used in real time. You take ISIS, for example. 1500 ISIS fighters were able to take the city of Mosul, which had a huge, you know, Iraqi army element there. And they were able to take Mosul as a result of mimetic warfare on, on Twitter. They basically amplified their ability to their, their show of force was so amplified that the Iraqi army thought that, you know, this really big army was about to just like take them out. And it really wasn't the case. So it created a lot of fear. Um, and they narrativized it, and then they were able to essentially take Mosul. So that's in one sense how you're able to use real mimetic warfare or narrative warfare um, to incapacitate um, uh, an operating uh, force or element, not just, you know, some guy trolling you. Right. Yeah. That That is so fascinating. So does, when in your experience as Marine, were there you know, standard operating procedures for you to say to your commanding officer, Hey, I have a gut feeling we should go here or should not go here. And then they listened to what you had to say. Yeah. There's a huge misconception today about how the military operates. Um, early, uh, Iraq, uh, they began to implement maneuver warfare, which was kind of this thing that came up in the eighties and the nineties, it really solidified itself uh, with the invasion of Iraq in 2003, which gave small unit leaders a lot of autonomy in the battle space. So it became a small unit leaders war. So everything was about centralized command, decentralized execution. So the idea that somehow I have to follow orders all the time uh, is, a, is a huge misconception. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example, um, we were operating with eight man teams. And I could give you, let me give you an evolution. In Iraq, when I was operating, it was squad-sized elements uh, that we were pushing out. So a 12-man team. And then when we conducted Operation Kanjar in 2009, it was platoon-sized elements, partly because we were fighting platoon-sized enemy elements or even larger. And then uh, slowly but surely, after a lot of Taliban began to get killed off, um, they began to operate in very, very small teams. So, for example, in 2011, when I was operating uh, we were operating with eight-man teams. So we had a lot of autonomy in the battle space. We had, I mean, we always honored, you know, commander's intent, but it was usually us making the decisions on the ground. So, you know, we had, we had, you know, our personal radios, um, our 152s, and we would just communicate. I'd tell Joe, I was like, hey, man, we need to reroute right now. And he would do it. He would make a decision. He would reroute. Or, hey, we're about to get hit. Be ready. And doom. Three seconds later or a second later, boom, we get we get hit with an ambush of some sort. Wow. We just we just knew. And, and that's part of the training, right? Is that you're literally biosyncing uh to your uh brother, but you're also biosyncing to your fire team, your squad, your platoon, and everyone that's operating with you. So you become this super organism where you're able to receive and transmit information, whether it's verbally, whether it's non-verbally. Did you ever have an incident where you doubted that? information that, you know, that precognition that, you know, maybe I just have indigestion and, and, you know, it was not, it was wrong. No, uh, no. From, you know, when you join the Marine Corps, uh, you know, you're going to get, you know what you're getting, you know what you signed up for. All right. So, um, I was privileged and honored to become a fire team leader early on as a boot and, taking on that responsibility 
either you show up or you don't. And so immediately you get tossed into the fire and you got to perform and you learn real quick what you're good at, what you're not good at. And then you come back and then you work on those discrepancies. So every time you deploy down range, you become that much more of an effective warfighter. So you don't have to second hand or second guess yourself about a decision that you're making. And here's the reality of it. Um, there's decisions that you're going to make that are going to essentially get people hurt. Uh, and I'll, and I'll give you a prime example. Um, I'm not going to say his name, but he was a machine gunner. Um, earlier that day, we had to go to this uh, main fob. And uh, while we were there, we were, you know, basically doing administrative work, but we were also getting some supplies. One of my buddies got shot in the leg by a sniper. And as a result of that, we ended up having to what they call egress back to the patrol base. So we ended up making a huge movement across maybe six clicks. Um, uh, I want to say maybe that's around like five, six miles. And it had been raining a lot. And, it, and you know, anyone who's gone down range and operated in Afghanistan, when it rains, it creates what we call peanut butter mud. So you're literally walking in thick fields of mud. And this stuff goes all the way to your knees and you already have 80 pounds of gear on you. So it's like hard navigating. So I remember Joe calling me up. He's like, hey, Josie, I need you to come up here. Um, we need to make a decision. And that decision was either we stick to the fields um, and don't risk IDs or we take the high road. And we get, you know, we get to our uh, objective or our PB as fast as we can, but the risk of IDs increases because that's where mainly um, improvised explosive devices are located. But there's also still that sniper threat. Um, so I told Joe, I was like, let's just go to the high ground. We'll put two sweepers up front, the patrol to check for any metallic hits. And uh, yeah, we'll be good to go. I didn't feel 100% there. And there's also, you know, you're in an elevated position and when you're on, and we were taking a, a, a route called route Elizabeth is into what ends up happening. We end up getting on the route and then a Taliban sniper about 600 meters away, takes a sh couple of shots, hits Fattis, hits him. <laughs> he drops, uh, he gets his legs tore up and, um, you know, that's the name of the game. We luckily we end up getting a medevac and then moving him out of there. But those are the, the decisions that you have to, to make. Now, when it comes to precognitive decisions, sometimes you have to override the ethical aspects of it. Uh, and, and since we're on that topic, you know, Joe, for example, uh, on June 5th, I, re you know, I started getting these premonitions that something bad was about to happen. And uh, Joe had it too. And then, you know, the day he did die, you know, right before patrol, you know, he's like, he comes up to me, he's like, Hey, he's like, what's wrong, man. And I'm like, got a bad feeling and he's like i've had it too and he goes and talks to donnie lets him know that once he hears something just to go and as small unit leaders we had the ability to say let's not go on a patrol today or let's halt this patrol but here's the paradox of time or you know the decision making process had we not gone out there it could have been worse for the adjacent patrol that was operating in that area what if they would have gotten hit and what if it would have killed a fire team or the whole squad? Mm. And so those decisions that you have to make, you know, yeah, you got to live with them for the rest of your life, but you make amends with what it is. It's a time of war. You're in war. He died doing what he was supposed to do. And he saved a lot of Marines lives. Wow. That's so tough. Oh my gosh. Hey, Curiositors, just a quick pause to show gratitude to our sponsors and give you some special deals. 
If trash TV leaves you feeling drained and you want to support creators like yours truly, check out StreamMoco. You can search shows by your mood and even, you know, watch my show, The Curious Introvert. For every $3.99 subscription, they give away a dollar for good and support their creators like your girl. Find my affiliate link in the episode description or the bio link in my Instagram account. Stream Moco, the streaming network that gives a damn. If you've got backyard barbecue plans for 2022, but mosquitoes are not invited, I recommend Insect. I've been using their pest control service for several years now. They have a certified mosquito identification specialist on staff. And pollinator care is always top of mind. If you live in the Florida Panhandle or the Gulf Coast of Alabama, give them a call, ensec.net. The UWF Historic Trust. We shoot the show at the Pensacola Museum of History. It not only houses exhibits of lesser-known Pensacola history, it's an event space, too. So if you need a unique space in downtown Pensacola for a fundraiser, networking event, or a corporate party, take a look at historicpensacola.org. And if you want to tour one of the 12 museums, get your tickets in person so you can show the agent one of my emails and get $2 off an adult ticket. Get emails by texting REAL to 66866. Now back to the show. So now in your in your role as a, you know a contractor for the military, you've said you use the sixth sense in your everyday work? Well, you know, so so I'm not operating anymore. Um, I do different types of work um, out in the community, uh, here at home, or just traversing the everyday life. And so those skill sets remain with you. Um, and that's a perishable skill set, right? So mm. <clears throat> if you're not practicing it, you're going to lose it. Uh, but it also evolves. And that's the other uh, piece that I wanted to hint at is, sure, you can the the pre-sentiments, the, the, the premonitions, the, the psychophysiological effects that you get from like a gut feeling, or maybe it's some a vision, or you just know something is up, you just can't explain it. Um, that ends up evolving uh, into precognitive dreams or visions of the future. And that's the stuff that gets really uh, wild because you can't really interpret that. Yeah. And, and you know, now that you know quantum mechanics is is coming a full way around, and we're developing certain languages like quantum entanglement, we're beginning to understand retrocausation. So we understand how information from the future can travel back to the past and affect the present. Uh, but we still don't really know how it works. We just know that it works, and and that's really my kind of like my message today is for all the so-called skeptics out there. I was like, all right, well. Give me the money. I'll take you down range. And then I guarantee you real quick, you're going to find out whether you got it or not. Yeah. Well, you said it's a perishable asset, which also means it's, you know, something that you, as you alluded to, you can develop. Is there, there are ways that just the average Joe and Jane can develop this for practical daily use? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so let's look at it through like a tier system. So let's say you want to dabble with it. Um, there's apps, you know, on your phone. Really? Uh, at the Google store. Yeah. Um, Dr. Julia Mossbridge, uh, she has a premonition code where you can go online and you can sign up and do some tests. Uh, 
one of her colleagues at IONS, um, the Institute of Noetic Sciences, Dr. Dean Radin, he also has a couple of programs where you can actually go and, and test to see whether you have this ability or not. That's uh, so online. crazy. That just blows my mind because when I think of like, oh, the first step is go online. I, I mean, I'm going to be honest, that is not <laughs> what I thought you were going to say. But when I think about, well, first you go online, I mean, immediately, I think, do you know who Teal Swan is? She's no, like, she's some cuckoo cult leader lady on YouTube. And she's just, there was a Netflix special about her recently. Um, she's special for sure. And it, it's like all the stereotypes of what people think of when they think about this category of stuff. Um, so when you were first like, oh, you go online, I immediately thought of her. And then you're like, and Dr. So-and-so and, and Professor So-and-so. It's like such a paradox, such a contrast in my mind of all of this. And I think that's maybe why I love the subject so much, but um, I'm rabbit trailing. Sorry, keep going. No, no, it's fine. And remember, it's a tier system. So I said that's one way you okay. could, you know, you could do that. Uh, the other way is, so my mentor and good friend, uh, Dr. Pasulka, um, having gone to the university and understood uh, how we look at certain types of lifestyle, certain types of text, certain types of things that are kind of odd, you use what the university teaches you, at least within the philosophy and religion department, right? So part of why I look at the biological framework is because uh, the Marine Corps is very reminiscent of a religious um, institution of sorts. We have clergy, we have our dog shine, we have our daily rituals, um, we're in isolated areas, uh, we're always practicing certain types of skill sets, and we're very much in tune with nature. I know some guys might argue with me, but at least that was my experience when I was, you know, in wartime um, fighting. And so when you take those aspects of the Marine Corps lifestyle and you uh, kind of parallel it to the monastic traditions or even biblical characters like, say, the judges of, uh, of the Bible or uh, John the Baptist or even Jesus or maybe even Muhammad, all these individuals had a very minimalist, distinct lifestyles that harped upon fasting and meditation and prayer and being in nature. And so you take those properties and you assess it and try to apply it to yourself. Well, how can I replicate that process? Right. Well, so, for example, um, my personal use, like how I do it is I have a regimen. I wake up very early and I start by drinking a glass of water. Then I go to the gym and then I tear it apart. And then I fast and I meditate all day long until whatever it is that I need to do. And so when you look at fasting and meditation, like take, for example, intermittent fasting, what does that do to the body? Intermittent fasting after six hours, your body ends up essentially burning off fat, but it also leads to what they called autophagy, which is your body's ability to process cell waste. So it promotes proper brain health function. And in a world where your dopamine is constantly hit, in a world where your cortisol is always flowing through or your norepinephrine is flowing through, um, having that ability brings you back to homeostasis. And then you're able to track the sensations that your central nervous system is making. So let's say, for example, you're typically not, a, you know, maybe you don't have anxiety or maybe you, you've been, you know, on a regimen for two weeks, but you begin to notice that you know, these thoughts come in your head and, and that's maybe the first step is where did that thought come from? Why, why is my, this little voice telling me to call Meredith? 
And should I act on it? And so you do. And you just so happen to find out that Meredith is going through a hard time. Oh, yeah. And, and, and so as a, and as a side note, this is one of the other projects that I've been working on is anecdotally, you know, with the podcast that I work on um, and the individuals that I talk to across the spectrum, uh, uh, mental health, right? So a lot of guys, you know, prior to a lot of these individuals completing suicide have mentioned there is this moment where I felt this voice told me or something told me I need to contact so-and-so right before he checked out. And I didn't. And so you have to act on it, right? That's, that's one aspect of it, but also to in your daily life, pre-sentiments, you may be going to the store and all of a sudden you get this weird vision that there's going to be a car accident or something. What, what, what's it going to hurt to hold off a little bit right. or just wait a few moments. Hmm. And so that's, that's one aspect of it. Those are really, those are really powerful. And I think we've all had that thing where we're like, we thought about a friend and we didn't act on it. And I can only speak for me personally. I, I have that somewhat often where I think of someone out of the blue and then I don't act on it. And I find out like around that time that I was thinking of them, they were going through something. Why didn't I act on it? Because, uh, I have a busy mind and I was, doing 10 things at once. And, you know, there was dirty dishes in the sink and, uh, I, I wasn't, I was distracted. Um, so I, I, that's really interesting. I don't think I ever made the correlation between these like precognitive, I, I don't even know what, there's so many names for it. You know what I mean? Those, those, um, um, nudges and mm-hmm. the ability to, be present within myself and to, to have the ability to respond to that. I never equated having a busy or chaotic mind with being dangerous potentially because of not heeding an internal warning. Uh, that's definitely a new thought for me. This is really interesting. I, as we close, I want to, um, I would love for you to comment on something that you said off mic. You said that the precognition frame is our only hope out of this meta crisis slash mental health crisis. Can you explain how that's true? If this isn't just a, a party trick. Yeah, sure. Um, so let me throw out some numbers real quick. Uh, since 2001, there have been over 120,000 uh, veteran suicides. Uh, Currently in the United States, there are 52.9 million people with what they call AMI or SMI. Uh, That's any mental illness or any serious mental illness. Increasingly, we see, well, to me, everything is weaponized. And every person in the United States is a combatant now as a result of the internet and smartphone abilities. Persuasive technologies and its platforms have been able to essentially been uh, utilized uh, for uh, the purposes of foreign actors, state-sponsored actors and proxies to essentially undermine the United States. Um, I look, again, I look at everything through the non-kinetic spectrum, not everything, but most things. And if I wanted to essentially make little of the United States fear of influence worldwide, I would target the cognitive infrastructure, which is something we lack. And I, just to bring that into numbers, Here in the state of North Carolina, there are over 2 million people that do not have any type of mental health support. There's 11 million people in this state. 2 million of them are vulnerable and at risk. 
So the current information ecosystem, the current internet, I don't believe the internet is a real internet. That's not the internet that I know. Of. That's the real internet. Uh, I call it the noosphere, which comes from uh, uh, Pierre uh, Deschardins. Uh, mm-hmm. I read that in Dr. Diana's book. <laughs> I yeah. love that. Explain it. Sorry to interrupt you. I just got really excited. No, no. So, yeah. so what if the internet wasn't designed? I mean, the, the internet was designed, you know, to, to do wonderful things, right? You know, and it evolved into doing wonderful things. But the internet that I know, which is a biological encrypted network, which is meant to, one, um, help each other excel in different areas of our lives, uh, not use each other as a means to an end, and then see a part of ourselves as one another, um, is through the use of precognition. Um, and when you're talking about precognition, you have to begin to adopt a different regimen, a different lifestyle, a social media diet, um, a diet to your technology in general, what you're absorbing. Um, the news does no justice talking about disinformation to what it really is. And, you know, I take a cue from Dr. Jeet Mon, who is an expert in narrative warfare, but this is about warfare over the meaning of things, um, not, not the information over the meaning of things. And when you're able to transport or assimilate a person into a pathogenic narrative, uh, they begin to adopt certain traits of those fictional characters or those uh, fictional elements. Um, so if I'm like, take, for example, the QAnon uh, phenomena, that's a gamified uh, alternate reality game. Um, and look at, look at what happened as a result of it. You get January 6th. And so if we were to take precognition serious uh, as a biological function, that is a somewhat of a first responder uh, protocol to some type of potential harm in the future, then it could allow us to create uh, a more resilient community. And there's a, there's a whole entire process that I have that I discuss of how that's broken down and I call it the O33 program. And the O33 program essentially takes an individual, schools them up and all these different parameters, teaches them about the evolution of warfare, the current operating and security environment, teaches them about how information is being weaponized and how it actually affects the brain and the body. And then tasking them with a kind of cultivated but safe um package where they're able to essentially biosync to another human being. So you put them through a sustainable agriculture program where they're able to grow their own crops. They're able to experience the idea of failure. Uh, you create a kind of like a, a bond as a result of the minor sufferings. Uh, and we need that in our lives. Um, and as a result of that, if you can do that and then give them an immortality project, which is to really look into the cognitive infrastructure, mental health supports, which does need to be revamped and reframed, then that's going to be their job. Um, I don't know. That's quite a bit that I just said. It is, but I, that's why this is recorded. People can play it back and that's why people can stay in touch with you and, and, you know, experience or experiment with aspects of this, as you said, in layers. So that's the perfect transition to close us out today. Can you tell people where they can um, stay in touch with you and, um, you know, anything else that you want people to engage with as they explore these ideas more? 
Yeah, sure. Um, I have a website. It's called uh, Jose Herrera 03xx.com. Uh, I'm on Facebook under Jose Herrera. Uh, and I'm on Instagram. You can find me there. Um, and yeah, you can send me an email and I'll try to respond to you as fast as I can. Well, this has been amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, thank you. Thanks for listening. If you've loved a couple episodes of this show, leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the Good Pods app. And if you liked this episode, you'll also like the one with the atheist scientist who studied near-death experiences for 50 years. It's episode 93. Stay tuned next week when I talk with a sober scientist as we ask the question, how do you know if you're an alcoholic?